Open your Bibles or navigate on your device to Exodus chapter 7. Our text this morning, Exodus 7, 14 through 8, 19. Don't panic. We can do it. The topic, starting with the Nile River, God performs a series of signs to convince hard-hearted Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. The title of our message, Pharaoh in Denial. doing my best up here. (laughs) This is my best material. Let's pray. Father, this is an ancient text that has a modern application. We want to understand the text, see it in context, but also glean from it all that you have for us today, Lord, so that when we leave this place, we know that your grace and mercy will sustain us and that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Top 100 lists or top 10 lists pique our curiosity. It's fun to try to predict the things that are going to be on the list and to see how our personal rankings stack up against what others think. In 2016, The Hollywood Reporter compiled a list of the top 100 movie quotes of all time. In the interest of time, I'll give you their top five. I'll give you the quote... We'll participate, right? I'm going to get your participation here for a minute. I'll give the quote, and you tell me what movie it's from. That's how famous these are. So they're top five. Number five, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. (laughs) Number four, may the force be with you. Number three, you're going to need a bigger boat. Ooh, there was a little pause there. (laughs) One of the great movies of all time, especially if you live near the ocean. I didn't go in the ocean for about three years after I first saw Jaws. And then we have another funny story I'll tell you. Back, I mean, we're so old that, you know, we were were there when they still had, you had to go get videos at the video store, right? And they had just released Jaws. And, of course, you can't, you couldn't see movies all the time. We remembered Jaws from when we had seen it in the theater. And so we thought, well, only a couple of people die in that. We'll show it to the kids. They're still troubled. (laughs) Number two, here's looking at you, kid. All right. Now, the American Film Institute, and uh, they had the Casablanca quote at number five. Their number two was, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. All right. This ends the audience participation part of our message. Because I'm going to ask you, and this is just for you to think about, what would you say is the number one movie quote of all time? Frankly, every list has the same number one. I won't say it because we're here in church. (laughs) I got you. It's Rhett Butler's last words to Scarlett O'Hara at the end of Gone with the Wind, universally chosen on every list as the greatest movie quote of all time. Now, growing up in the 60s, it seems like every year around Easter, we watch the Ten Commandments. It's not historically accurate. It's not biblically accurate. But for a movie released in 1956, it has stood the test of time. There is one incredible quote in the film. While not in the Bible's account, nevertheless is an expressive summary of the contest between Moses and Pharaoh. Slouching on his throne, having been defeated... Yule Brenner, as Pharaoh says, slowly and distinctly, his God is God. 
What a tremendous statement. His God is God. In the book of Exodus, Moses delivers God's message to Pharaoh saying, let my people go. Pharaoh asks with disdain, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? Here in chapter 7, we're going to read, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. In other words, I will show you who I am. God means the series of ten signs in which he proves that his God is God. We're going to look at these signs three at a time, building up to the tenth and final sign, the death of the firstborn throughout Egypt. Today we're going to read about water being turned to blood, the multiplication of frogs and gnats. Those were incredible historic events that happened just as reported by Moses. But we want a little bit more than that. We want to know how these events apply to us today. So along those lines, I'm going to organize my comments around two points. Number one, you struggle against the powers of this world. And number two, you suffer alongside the people of this world. Let's take a look, first of all, at struggling against the powers of this world. Now, as I said, we're going to take the signs by threes, obviously in the interest of time, for sure. But there are good reasons in the text itself to see them grouped together. For example, in each series of three, the third sign is not announced to Pharaoh. It simply occurs without warning. The third sign in each group also breaks a pattern in the group. Today, we're going to see that the first two signs, water turned to blood and the multiplication of frogs, can be duplicated by Egypt's magicians. But the third sign in that group, the multiplication of gnats, they cannot duplicate. In the second group of three, which are flies, livestock, and boils, the magicians stand in Pharaoh's presence for the first two, but after the third, they can no longer stand in his presence, breaking the pattern. And then in the third set of three, Pharaoh repents after the first two, after the hail and the locusts, but ultimately he reneges after the third sign, darkness. He then dismisses Moses once and for all, setting up the final sign, the tenth, the death of the firstborn. One more thing before we begin in earnest. It's commonly taught that each of the ten signs was directed at defeating one of Egypt's gods. That's sort of true. As far as God versus God, there were something like 150 gods in Egypt, so no two lists of the ones God supposedly defeated ever really agree. It's better, therefore, to see God proving himself superior to all of Egypt's 150-plus gods and to all false gods, rather than just 10 of them. By these 10 signs, he leaves no doubt in anyone's mind that he is God. And so beginning in verse 14, so the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water, and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And the rod which was turned into a serpent, you shall take in your hand. And you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness, but indeed until now you would not hear. Now we spent a good while in our last study explaining that Pharaoh's hard heart was his own free will response to God's efforts to reach him. We compared it to the modern practice of nations applying sanctions to rogue nations, attempting to get them to relent from things like their nuclear ambitions. In many cases, it only serves to harden them against the rest of the world and to remain committed to their maniacal designs. 
God gave Pharaoh lots of time to change his mind. According to the Bible knowledge commentary, and I'll quote, the ten plagues may have occurred over a period of about nine months. The first occurred when the Nile rises in July or August. The seventh was in January when barley ripens and flax blossoms. The prevailing east winds of March or April were the eighth plague would have brought locusts, and the tenth plague occurred in the Passover month, April. And so I'd never thought about that before, but this happened over a long extended period of time, giving Pharaoh plenty of opportunity to repent. God not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So verse 17, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with a rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, and the river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died, the river stank, the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river, so there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. You probably noticed I've been calling these signs, not plagues. They certainly effectively were plagues upon Egypt, but they were first and foremost signs to introduce God to Pharaoh. In the last few years, it's become popular to try to describe all these signs by reducing them to some natural occurrence. We reject that. There's no room in the text for us to come to that conclusion. We need to not be embarrassed by the Bible's supernatural stories. You would expect God to perform incredible signs throughout human history. Besides, people are more open to the supernatural than ever. It's not time to shrink away from Jonah being swallowed by a great fish, not while mainstream scientists are relying on ancient astronaut theories to describe human origins. If you watch any educational television now, you know that it's mainstream for scientists to, who can't answer questions of origins to say, well, I guess we were visited by aliens. Ancient alien astronauts came and they gave us this knowledge. It's not a time for Christians to think that, well, we don't want to talk about the supernatural because that would offend somebody. We just want to present the Word of God as the Word of God and let it do its business. Our supernatural is better than theirs anyway because it's true. And so verse 22, then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments and Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul names two of these magicians. They are Janus and Jambres. They duplicated the sign, or at least they too could turn quantities of water into blood. More blood wasn't exactly what you needed if you were in Egypt at that time. I mean, it would have been great if they had turned blood into water. Perhaps they did try to reverse it. We're not told, but that would be logical. So why make more blood? Well... They're probably attempting to establish that they and their gods were just as powerful as Moses and the God of Israel. It was a thing of whatever Moses and his God can do, we can do, so you don't need to worry about it. 
ultimately, it's, you know, even if we fight to a draw, you still keep the children of Israel and don't have to let them go. Now, it does serve to warn us that the servants of Satan can at times produce signs and wonders. That's why it's important for us to judge the teaching that comes from people, their doctrine. What are they really saying about Jesus Christ? Do they agree that he is God come in the flesh, fully God and fully man, that he died on the cross and rose bodily from the dead and is coming again, those kinds of things. So it's not the signs and the wonders uh, that prove someone, it is their teaching. Verse 23, and Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. Pharaoh was not convinced that God had the power to defeat Egypt even after this great sign because his own magicians could do something similar. After 400 years, why wait another nine months? Again, I point out the great lengths God was willing to go to in order to try to reach Pharaoh. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink because they could not drink the water of the river, and seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. Like so many despots, ancient and modern, Pharaoh had no compassion for his own people. He turned around, went back into his house. If there was any water to be found by digging, he would get first dibs. Uh, For seven days, his people went around uh, desperate for water. Now, I got to thinking about this. I was wondering how the Egyptians could go that long with such little potable drinking water. And one word kept suggesting itself to me in my searches, beer. Actually, it's not in the Bible, but we know from ancient Egyptian scholars that beer was a prevalent preferred beverage. It was so prevalent, in fact, that it could be used as wages. At the end of the day, they would pay you in beer. Oh, how the mighty have fallen, right? Now we go and now people at the end of the day get their wages and go buy beer. Maybe they went on a seven-day beer bender while the Nile ran red and it wasn't so bad after all. I don't know, but uh, they drank, they had stuff to drink that wasn't water. Now Moses had struck first blood, but Pharaoh hardened his heart. So in chapter 8, the Lord spoke to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. If you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your servants, on your people, into your ovens, into your kneading bowls, and the frogs shall come up on you, on your people, and on all your servants. Remember the game Frogger, the classic arcade game? In Egypt, instead of trying to get the frog to safety, you were trying to avoid stepping on frogs. Now, there was nothing remotely playful about having frogs everywhere. Even those of you who think reptiles and amphibians make great pets have to be creeped out about this many frogs. First service, I went to great lengths to try and describe this, but in between services, the sound guys cornered me and said, we have a better way of promoting this, so uh, we're going to take a look at some frogs right now. Enough said. Why frogs? I don't know, and neither does anyone else. Yes, there was a deity that they've seen in hieroglyphics that had a frog's head. 
but again, I don't think God was going after individual gods. He was there to just show his power over all. And uh, I think frogs are pretty creepy in that amount. And so it obviously was from the Lord. So verse 5, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. Our attention is so fixed upon Pharaoh, we're overlooking the obedient faith of Moses and Aaron. It wasn't easy to believe that frogs in this quantity were going to appear. And especially for Moses, we established early on in his career, he didn't really want this assignment. At one point, he told God to find somebody else. But God stuck with him. He uh, encouraged him. And now Moses is doing a pretty bang-up job of bringing these signs. And so verse 7, the magicians did the same with their enchantments and brought frogs on the land of Egypt. If frogs were already everywhere, like we saw, how did they know that more frogs were produced? I speculate that they hopped like Egyptians. <laughs> then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. That must have sounded great to everybody. But it was short-lived because in verse 9, And Moses said to Pharaoh, Accept the honor of saying, When I shall intercede for you, for your servants and for your people, to destroy the frogs from you and your houses, that they may remain in the river only. So he said, Tomorrow. And he said, Let it be according to your word, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. In other words, he had Pharaoh pick the exact time that this would stop, and he prayed, and it stopped. And again, this is another reason why none of this has a natural explanation. Even if you could come up with some weird natural explanation for a plague of frogs, you can't explain that it stopped like that when Moses prayed. And your answer to that has to be that they just added that, that it's mythological, and that destroys the integrity of the Word of God. So we take this to be literally true, and there's no reason to think otherwise. Verse 11. And the frogs shall depart from you, from your houses, from your servants, from your people. They shall remain in the river only. And Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs, which he had brought against Pharaoh. So the Lord did according to the word of Moses. And the frogs died out of the houses, out of the courtyards, and out of the fields. They gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. This would have been a frog gigger's dream time to be alive. How many of you, honestly, have gone frog gigging? All the really manly men. I remember when I first was in Hanford in the late 80s. We came here in 85. I don't know. It was somewhere right after that. There was a group of guys in the church, weightlifters, as a matter of fact, and they loved to go frog gigging, and they, they wanted to get me involved with it. And so we went out to that great frog gigging uh, pasture in Lemoore, the golf course, and um, with our, our gigs, you know, these trident-shaped things, found these gigantic frogs, ah! killing frogs left and right. I mean, there were frogs everywhere. We were so manly. <laughs> and then we took those frogs, and we took their legs off. We ripped their legs off, and we cooked their legs, and we ate them. And I went home, and I thought, what am I doing in the Central Valley of California? <laughs> what has happened to me? 
I used to be a Southern California boy. I didn't know that you could even eat a frog, let alone gig one yourself. Apparently, frogs were not on the menu in Egypt. And the truth is, and I'm being serious now, some of you are going to think I'm joking or lying. The Egyptians ate a mostly plant-based diet. An article on InsideScience.com stated, if you're a vegetarian, tucking in along the Nile thousands of years ago would have felt just like home. A French research team working with 45 mummies, who wouldn't want to do that, by testing for carbon ratios were able to determine not only did the Egyptians eat mostly plants, they ate very little fish. Who knew? Verse 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. Did you ever have the experience of crying out to God and having him help you through something only to then turn your back on him? That happened to me several times in my life before I became a Christian. Or maybe a non-believing friend or family member turned to the Lord in the midst of a difficulty only to fall away once it was over. Maybe you're here today going through some trauma or trial and you have been driven back to the Lord for help only to get his help and then do what? Continue to walk with him or go back to that same life of being uh, apart from him? It's very common. This phrase, as the Lord had said, points to God's foreknowledge. Of course he knew beforehand what Pharaoh would do. But God's foreknowledge doesn't cause Pharaoh to harden his heart. He knows what Pharaoh is going to do, but that doesn't translate into determinism. The next sign starts out differently. It breaks the pattern in this first trilogy, verse 16. So the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so, for Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth, and it became lice on man and beast. And all the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. There was no going to Pharaoh this time. There was no warning. This just... Uh, was accomplished. The Hebrew word translated lice occurs only here in the Old Testament. Gnats or biting insects is actually a better translation. Verse 18. Now the magicians worked so hard with their enchantments to bring forth the gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast, biting insects. I don't know about you, but biting insects are one of the things that I least like on this planet. Uh, you ever, those of you who watch Survivor, I always go for the details in the background. By the time it's over, those people are covered from head to toe with biting nap. I don't think your skin ever is going to recover from something like that. Anybody, you know, I, I, kudos to them. You always can tell who's been on Survivor because their, their skin is ruined forever. I mean, it's terrible. Insects, I just, I can live without them. It wasn't that gnats were, uh, oh, verse 18, now the magicians worked hard with their enchantments to bring forth gnats, but they could not. It wasn't that gnats are harder to produce than frogs. God determined it was time to show Egypt that the powers of their magicians was not on any par with his. He was patient. He allowed them to, to counter him. We don't like that. We want God to just put the hammer down. Get this done. Let's go. I'm in a trial, Lord. I'm in a difficult situation. Going to work tomorrow, I'm not excited about that because of what's happening there. Just put the hammer down. And God says, well, let's give a little bit more time. Let's just see what happens tomorrow if you go with grace and mercy and forgiveness. He just went to church. 
Maybe that'll make a difference. And, and so now God says, okay, we've done these two signs. I'm going to take the ability to make these things away from you, kind of make some differentiation so that you see that if I really want to, I can bring the hammer down. But he wants to do it gently, and that's a great thing about our God. Verse 19, magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. This is really a great admission of God's power. He only needed to lift a finger to accomplish this sign. It should cause one to tremble at what he could do. Notwithstanding, Pharaoh only strengthened his resolve to defy the Lord. Obviously, this whole episode is unique. It's the one and only time God is working in this particular way to deliver several million Jews from bondage into their promised land. It's never been repeated, never will be. At the same time, at its core, this is something happening every day involving us. At its core, the man, or in this case, men of God, have a message of deliverance for those held captive by the ruler in charge, who depends upon the powers that aid him to maintain his nefarious kingdom. That's a perfect description of the situation we find ourselves in as Christians in the church age. Satan is the ruler of this world. He's called the God of this world and the prince of the power of the air. He promotes a nefarious kingdom of darkness. He is aided by various powers, specifically by principalities and powers, the rulers of darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. We're in the midst of that kingdom, sent out with a message of deliverance that we call the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe, freeing them from sin and from Satan, delivering them out of their bondage. We don't carry a staff or a rod that can turn into a serpent or bring forth mighty signs because that's not the kind of warfare we're currently waging. Instead, we have spiritual weapons, but they are every bit as powerful because their source is the same as Moses' staff. Their source is the living God. We need to be committed to the truth that spiritual weapons are superior. To put it negatively, we need to reject the use of carnal weapons and trust in spiritual ones. While you may eventually, for example, file a grievance at work, try love and mercy and forgiveness first. And even if you must go through some process, depend upon grace to sustain you. You're most likely right where God wants you to reach some Pharaoh with the message of the cross. It's a confrontation between what is righteous and what is unrighteous And you're going to win that confrontation and win hearts by being like Jesus, not by being like the world. And so that's a great, uh, great message for us this morning. Now, secondly, you suffer alongside the people of this world. There's something else subtle but powerful to reflect upon in these first three signs. While not every commentator agrees, it does seem that the Israelites were affected by these three signs just as much as the Egyptians. Here's why I think they were. The next sign we're going to read about, the fourth one, is flies. In Exodus 8, 22 and 23, we read this. In that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. 
For the very first time, we read that God exempted Israel from the effects of a sign. The same thing is said of the fifth sign in Exodus 9.4, and the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so nothing shall die of all that belongs to the children of Israel. While no direct mention is made of a distinction in the sixth sign, the implication of Exodus 9.11 is clear. It reads like this, And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of boils, for the boil was upon the magicians and upon all Egyptians. No mention of Israelites. From the plague of hail, the Israelites are going to be exempt. In chapter 9, it goes on to say, Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. Of the eighth sign, which was locusts, Exodus 10, 5, and 6 says that it was directed against the Egyptians. And then finally, the ninth sign, darkness, says in uh, Exodus 10, 23, all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. And so you see, when you read all of that, you see that there was no mention of any exemption in the first three, but beginning with the sign, the fourth sign, and all the way through the ninth, God makes a big deal about saying, hey, not only am I going to bring this sign, you're not going to see it in the land of Goshen where my people dwell. I'm going to make a distinction. And so that means that the first three signs, water turned to blood, frogs and gnats, the Israelites also suffered alongside the Egyptians in those signs. So what can we make of that? Well, first of all, we realize that Christians are not exempt from the tragedies and catastrophes that occur with increasing frequency in our fallen world. One writer puts it like this, rain and sunshine, flood and drought, plenty and famine, prosperity and depression, war and peace, lightning and hail, tornado and hurricane, health and pestilence, all these befall the wicked and the righteous in common. We live in a fallen world where terrible, terrible things happen and are happening all of the time. And it happens to Christians as well as non-Christians. We know that. The difference between believers and non-believers in catastrophes is that God can work all things together for our good in them and through them. They can be used by God to further our sanctification, to further our spiritual growth toward holiness, toward our being more like Jesus. And so if we're called upon to endure the same kinds of things that people in the world who are not Christians are, God can nevertheless use them to mold and shape us into the image of His Son. But let's take a step further back. Let's not just look at ourselves. Let's not start with ourselves and wonder why we are not exempt from certain sufferings. Let's start with Jesus. Jesus was eternally God. He was with the Father and the Spirit in perfect fellowship in heaven, which is a lot nicer than Hanford, right? What did he decide to do in order to save the human race? Philippians says this, being in the form of God, Jesus did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, coming in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of a cross. God became man. Deity took upon humanity. Of this we read with wonder and awe in the book of Hebrews. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. In other words, Jesus came into our world and suffered alongside of us. We can list some of those alongside sufferings. Jesus lived in poverty. 
Jesus suffered exhaustion. Jesus experienced intense grief. Jesus was betrayed. After all of that and more, Jesus died in our place in the cruelest way, mocked by his own creations on the cross at Calvary after being mercilessly beaten and scourged. We might mention, too, that in his resurrection from the dead, Jesus now has a glorified human body that still bears at least some of his scars. He has limited himself, in a sense, to a human body. And that body has scars so that he can identify with us for eternity. Even in his glory, he shows that he suffered alongside of us. With that perspective, we can certainly suffer alongside the lost to give them the opportunity to be saved. The Lord is only calling us to do what he did to a much greater degree than we could ever fathom. When you and I suffer generally or especially for the sake of Jesus Christ, it's nothing that the Lord hasn't gone through to a much greater degree. I mean, you might say, well, the Lord never had this disease or this illness or whatever. Jesus came from heaven to earth. And that alone, that, that humility alone is beyond anything that you and I will ever suffer on our way to heaven. And so when we have to suffer It's to suffer alongside so that people can look at our life. Believers and non-believers both are watching you to see if Jesus makes a difference in your life and especially in your times of difficulty. You don't want people to say of your spiritual life, I see dead people. You want them to say, His God is God. Let's pray. 